This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with me, Helen Mark. It's a damp, drizzly morning. It's not yet fully light. And yet there are people lining the streets of Lerwick, the capital of Shetland. They are about to experience the annual community event that is known as Up Heli A. This is a Viking fire festival. I can just hear in the air the distant sound of bagpipes and the occasional... Hurrah! Roar! And any moment, the hordes of geysers, as they're known, will be marching along the streets of Lurwick for the beginning of this year's Up Helia. And we are here to take part in these celebrations for this week's Open Country. Celebrations which connect and cherish the Norse traditions of Shetland. squad, this horde of men and boys dressed magnificently as Vikings. We have Geyser Jarl and this year it's Neil Robertson. He is leading this march along the streets of Lerwick and just looking at his costume, he has the great raven wings on his helmet, the green cloak with a gold lining, he's got his shield and battle axe and his legs are strapped with sort of leather wrappings and look they come past you and it's just got the chain mail on and these are guys who are dressed for war and we were really lucky that earlier on we managed to have a quick chat with Geyser Jarl Neil Robertson To be the Geyser Jarl you have to have spent 15 years in the committee so I joined up LAR committee in 2000 and I've finally floated to the top and how do you feel about it, you know, to actually do it? As a youngster, I, I was lucky enough to take part in Uphelia in as a member of the Arl squad with my uncle Jim back in 1971. I was nine years old at the time. And I thought this chap, the geyser Jarl, was just the most important, wonderful person in the world. And to get to dress up as a Viking and have a spear and a shield was just great at that age. And I guess I'm still feeling like a wee kid at heart because I think it's still great to dress up and be the, the top guy. It's great. Except now you can support a massive beard. <laughs> yes, the beard's been nearly 18 months or more in the making. And when you're doing it, do you feel you know, you're putting on a great event, a spectacle for visitors and tourists, or does it go deeper into the heart of Shetland than that? It's deeper. We would do this if nobody came to watch it. If nobody came at all, we would still build a boat and dress up and burn it. 1880s, it was started up. It has quite an unusual history. It's not as far back as people might think, but it it did evolve out of your Norse heritage. Well, sort of. In the 1870s, the police in Shetland and Lerwick were getting a little bit fed up with the tar barrelling that was going on. This is barrels of boiling tar set alight and dragged through the streets. And they would try and crash into each other. And if there was somebody they didn't like, they might leave the barrel burning outside their door and char the door for a bit. Things were getting out of hand. The police put a stop to it. The local merchants at the time recognised that there was a a need for some sort of release. So they hit on the idea of 
creating a, a festival that hark back to some Norse heritage, real or imagined. And Uphelia! What's that about? Don't know. Nobody can tell you what it means. Helly is a weekend, but it's not at the weekend, so I don't know. Well, you'll all be singing it. Anyway, there's a song that goes around it. You'll be chanting it. Everybody that's done it before me says, savour it. It's away in the blink of an eye. But you say it's one hell of a blink. <laughs> You've come out to be part of the early morning crowd. Yes. So what are your thoughts as you see the horde approaching? Well, I'm just very excited. I have family in the, in the squad this year, so... Uh, grown-up men or the wee lads the Grown-up men. Grown-up men. My stepdad, who he actually designed all the weaponry. When you see them coming up the road, that first glimpse, you know, what does it feel like? Uh, emotional for me. Yeah, very, very emotional every year. Why? It's part of my culture. It's something I grew up with. We're very proud of them. It's, just, it's an exciting day. It's better than Christmas. Hi, are you visiting the island? Uh, yeah. yeah. Especially to see Uphelia? Yes, yes. Well, it was on the top 100 things to do before you kick the bucket, so thought I'd take it off my list. So. During the day, the Jarl squad march all round the town, stopping at key places as they go through Lerwick. Their uniforms are just absolutely fantastic. The amount of work and detail that are in them. Imagine this really thick padded jerkin which goes down to just above the knee and then their legs are strapped with deerskin or something. And the helmets aha, here they come. They're looking a little bit bedraggled. So they go right into the museum and there are hundreds of people here. <laughs> Outside the museum, inside, up the stairwells, they've come to have a look at the Jarl squad. And then once they're inside, they perform songs and there's great merriment and a chance to warm up. Stand in the middle is a big group and their axes are held high and they're singing away and then all the public round about them and they all seem to know the words of the song. <laughs> it's a great atmosphere. People are so proud just to be round the Jarl squad for that moment. Just to be part of Up Helia in that way. leave the Viking squad to continue their tour around the town of Lerwick. I'll be back to catch up with them later on though for the start of the torchlit procession this evening. But in the meantime I'm going to go and find out a little bit more about these islands. I'm leaving Lerwick and I'm heading over to the west and what's interesting about the geographical formation of Shetland is that what you have really is this elongated island archipelago and I am on what they call the mainland but actually there are about a hundred islands 15 of them are inhabited and traveling 
east to west doesn't take very long. One, because it's not very far. It's only about 15 or 18 miles. And also the road system is absolutely fantastic. Tremendous roads which rise and fall over the hills across this incredibly bleak moorland. We're in the most northerly part of the United Kingdom. And so far away from mainland Scotland that actually we're closer to Norway than we are to the capital of Scotland, down in Edinburgh. And that link with Norway is something that I'm going to explore a little bit further. So I've come to Scalloway. I've come down into the harbour area. There are various boats out in the water. They're involved in the seafood industry. There's a large cruise liner in, but not for tourists. These, these are one of the many boats that house the construction workers that come to, 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 to work on Shetland. And we've arranged to meet Bill Moore at a very special place down here in the harbour. This is a sort of about a five-foot-high stone-built column which commemorates, I think, Bill. Is that the right way to I say think it? Commemorates. Um, yes. A very special part of the links between Shetland and Norway, and it's known as the Shetland Bus. We're talking about World War Two here, and well, tell me, what was it? Well, the Shetland Bus, in essence, was a transport mechanism to supply Norway's resistance with the munitions and explosives and radio operators and agents uh, which we needed to build up the resistance in Norway after it was occupied. But here we are on the west side of Shetland and, you know, Norway's (laughs) far off to the east. So why was it here that they ran this this incredible operation from? A very good question. Yeah, well, it started off at Lunna, which is in the northeast of Shetland, closest point to Norway, and made good sense. Very isolated place, uh, ideal for a top-secret operation. But they realised after the first winter that the boats were coming back almost smashed to pieces because of weather, the Luftwaffe, and they didn't have repair facilities. And so they asked my father, who had the marine engineering works here, if they could come here. This was a winter operation because boats were pretending to be fishing boats. So they had to get into the coast of Norway under cover of darkness. They would land all their, uh, do all their business, land the explosives and men, and pick up refugees, which was a vital part of the transport. And bring them back into Scalloway. Bring them back, yes. Why did it have to be a winter operation? Uh, Simply because of the uh, daylight. In the summer, we have continuous daylight. There is no darkness. And these boats had to get across close to the coast of Norway and not be spotted. Now, just to look at this monument again, it's built of, you know, a a wonderful selection of stones and granite. We've got plaques round it, brass plaques, with the names of people who, well, who sadly didn't survive those winter voyages. And on the very top, we have a small metal replica of, well, a disguised fishing boat. That was the Andholm. And that particular boat is still going strong today. Who was organising it, though? It was organised by the British military. Um, Churchill, at the start of the war, set up his special operations, his special army, the SOE, Special Operations Executive. The idea was that they would work behind enemy lines but it was the the Norwegians who were on those boats, who set out from here as we look across the water bill, out of 
well, the relative shelter of this harbour into the open sea in the depths of winter. Into the open sea, yes, in the depths of winter. And some of the trips were to Arctic Norway. It meant five days and five nights on the sea in darkness. And your father's workshop, Bill, was along the quay here. Um, Can we walk that way towards it? Yes, sure, yeah. We'll just walk through the village, which really hugs the edge of the water, doesn't it? There's a lot of focus on what happens in the harbour in Scalloway. It's a very good sheltered harbour, a prime spot for settlement, I should think, when the Vikings came. We've come along the harbour a little bit and we'll come to where your father's workshop was. It's still used in marine engineering and maintenance work. It still has that purpose, but your father long since gone. And he died in 1999. He was just short of 100. And did he um, talk about his work restoring those boats to, to head off to Norway? Yes, all the time. I mean, the, the Shetland bus was very much a part of our lives. Although I have no recollections of it. I was only born in 1942. But no, there were so many uh, contacts made, so many friends. So yes, strong ties. I've come further south in Shetland, down to an area known as Sumbera, and uh, to a particular place called Jarlshof, because I feel that this is where we can learn more about the historic connections between Shetland and Norway, Scandinavian peoples. And I'm here with Val Turner, you're the regional archaeologist. And, oh, Val, where we are standing now, we have our feet in Norse, (laughs) in this great ancient remains of a longhouse. Yes, that's right. We're standing in one of a number of the longhouses at Jarlshof. They start off around perhaps the 9th, 10th century and go on for several centuries and then the style of architecture gradually changes and you see that here as it gradually evolves into what today is a Shetland Croft House. So they came as invaders, but what we're standing in is more how they settled themselves down the islands. Yes, I mean, how they really came initially is a matter of huge dispute among archaeologists and the extent to which they were violent invaders, raiders, whatever, and the extent to which they came as traders and more peacefully and settled here is kind of disputed. It holds the name Jarlshof, and Jarl is Norse for... Earl, yes. Which, of course, they use in Upheliya, the Jarl squad... Really, the area was fortuitously named by Walter Scott in his novel The Pirate. And he wrote about the big house here, of which we only see one wing still standing because the other three wings were taken away when they were excavating the site. He didn't know there were Viking remains here? I think he had no idea. (laughs) It was later than that that coastal erosion started revealing the archaeology. And hence, it was revealed, this Viking settlement. But it isn't just here. It's all across the islands you can see the remains of, of Viking habitation. It was a really strong grip on the place. Well, it's clearly a very important part of Shetland's past. It's shaped who Shetlanders are today. It's shaped the islands, the legacy of the Vikings. I mean, arguably, they never went away. They came here and they stayed. And many of the people here feel a very strong identity that they are the descendants of the Vikings, which is in some measure true. There's a helicopter coming in to land. 
And although we have our feet in the Vikings, we're actually right next door to Sumbera Airport. <laughs> Indeed, yes. This is one of the flattest areas of land in the islands, and that would have not only made it attractive for settlement, but it also is attractive today as an airport. <laughs> and this Norse identity, you feel still holds strong? Yes, it's still in the dialect, it's in the place names. The original Norse language was called Norn? Well, Norn was kind of what the Scandinavian Vikings spoke, and the nearest equivalent now is Old Icelandic. The Scandinavian link is very, very strong, and, I mean, has been right from the Viking period onwards. That's, that's never really stopped. As the day goes on, Val, we are more and more looking forward to going to Uphelia. It's a wonderful spectacle, and I know that you'll enjoy it. And, of course, the Jarl squad, who dress up as Vikings, or theoretically dress up as Vikings, of course, they have things like horns on their helmets and, or wings. How authentic is it when we see them? Well, of course, the idea of Vikings wearing horns on their head was a Victorian invention. There's no evidence of that at all. So it is, say, a bit of theatricality. I'm going to leave the longhouse here at Jarlshof and just a little bit further south, in fact, I can see it. High up in the hill, there's a lighthouse and that's where the RSPB have their base and I'm going there to meet Newton Harper. Fantastic location. We're standing just at the cliff edge looking down onto the swelling sea, this magnificent foam of white against the rocks. Yep. And I love, too, the icy blueness that you get in the water down there. Beautiful colours. The swirling of birds, what have we got? So right in front of you, you've got foamers soaring on the wind. And a lot of these are resident all year round, unlike some of the other seabirds, which will come during the summer just for a few months to breed and leave again at the end of summer. But on the stacks at the moment, we've got guillemots. And they're just like tiny little dots. They're so far below us. Yeah, you can't, see them. you can't mm-hmm. see them so well right now, but there's a fair number of them on the stacks and the shoulders of the cliffs here. And they're just back in the last sort of month. And they've been off the coast of Norway since mid-late July. They come here to breed and they stick on their little few inches of rock each. Because it's a savage place to try and create a nest and raise chicks. It's pretty wild, yeah. Mm. And we get here to a good sense of the lie of the land because coming up from our right-hand side here, we have the great sweep of the North Sea. Yep. And then coming the other way, the Atlantic. And Shetland kind of lies as this run of rock between Absolutely, these two. yeah. And that's one of the reasons it's, it's so special for seabirds and that they thrive so well. So, yeah, you have got that, that big meeting, which is just round the corner, really. The cold currents coming from the Arctic and the warm currents coming in from the Atlantic... You'll see seals, porpoise, which are called nisiks in Shetland. And nisiks is a Shetland word for, it means sneezer. Because when you breach out the water, they, it sounds like they sneeze. And occasionally whales as well. You know, Sombra Head's a really good place to, to see whales. When they're around, you never know when you might see them. I noticed too the Shetland ponies. Mm-hmm. Do you know, these diminutive, stocky, strong creatures... You know, standing not that much higher than the heather. That's right. Yeah, they seem to not mind getting their feet wet and they can weather a a fair bit of rain and and wind, which they need to. They just turn their backs to it. Yeah, they're absolutely gorgeous. And they are definitely a sort of part of the landscape. And look at what's coming at us, Newton. Look across the sea, that 
smouldering greenness yeah. that's, that's going to envelop us anymore. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's <laughs> an incredible light. Isn't it? And that's one of the incredible things of, about Shetland. The horizon's just, it stretches so far. We were learning about the Shetland bus and how the Norwegian fishermen were taking supplies over to the resistance in Norway. Yeah. And they were heading out into seas like this and winds and rain. And they're little boats, yeah. yeah. And, you know, later this evening we're going to experience the torchlight procession of Upheliar. Fantastic. Yeah. An awful lot of fire in the middle of winter when it's really dark and it's cold. It's a fantastic celebration. The signal that blasts out across the town announces the beginning of Upheliar and with that all the guys are stepped forward and their torches are lit and the whole darkness of night is dispersed. It's like standing in broad daylight. You can see all the geysers, all the different outfits that they have, the costumes. Oh, my goodness, right down the full length of the street, this, this river of fire, the flames leaping up into the air in the wind. ship has just gone past us and on board we still have Geyser Jarl and um, some members of his Jarl squad and then behind him this continuing line of torches and what they'll do is they'll go into the community park um, and this marks the beginning of the end for this beautiful replica longboat. Especially for this? Yeah. <laughs> Especially for Apelia. From how far away? Uh, from London. Oh my goodness, that's quite a journey. Train to Edinburgh, bus to Aberdeen, boat to Shetland. So you really feel the length of the country. I saw this on Blue Peter when I was about 10, and John Noakes came, and I remember being a gog. And 50 years later. Yeah. It's an amazing advertisement for Shetland. It's hard not to be impressed with five out. 900 torch bearers. It's an amazing thing to be to be a part of it. everywhere and the marchers have had to duck their heads down and smoke begins to get in your eyes we're getting to that moment which marks the end of the torchlight procession the geysers are gathered in the community park around the longship and it's only a matter of moments now before they take these giant-sized matchsticks, still burning bright, still sending smoke up into the sky. They will throw those into the galley and there'll be a roar of flame 
as this beautiful replica longship just disintegrates in the flames. Oh, and there it goes. It just ignites immediately, and this shower of, of sparks rises high above our heads into the air. They're throwing the torches in. I am way back from this fire, but I can feel that heat, and it's reflecting in the windows of all the houses that are around this square. I'm just now watching the Jarl squad, this group of men who are dressed in these magnificent Viking outfits with their shields still glinting in the dying embers of the burning longboat. And they're going to disperse from the park and they're going to spread out through the community. It's the end of the torchlight procession. What's about to happen now are hours and hours of merrymaking. 